2: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from New York City. We're joined, as always, at this time of the week by my uh, co-host, Dr. Kavita Patel, a uh, practicing physician, former Obama White House official. How are you doing today, Kavita?
3: Great, David. So it's a warm 29 degrees in D.C., maybe a little warmer, maybe 39.
2: Fantastic. Well, Summer. I just came down from Boston and there were massive piles of snow. We are also joined today because our discussion is going to go in a legal direction by Two first time guests, Richard Painter, who's a former chief ethics lawyer at the George W. Bush White House. Hi, Richard. Nice of you to join us. Well, wow, thank you for having me. And we're also joined by Randall Eliason, who is a former assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, I think is also uh, teaching law at Georgetown. Am I right about that? George Washington. George Washington. Well, there's yes. was a George, some George in there. I apologize for that Not um, the right city. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you for that city city. I've been working in for the past 30 years. OK, so here's this is, uh, you know, part analysis and uh, maybe just a little bit of psychotherapy for me, possibly for Kavita, because, you know, we like uh, so many other people out there look at the Daily Revelations regarding the Trump administration and its sweeping efforts to, to use their own terms, steal the last election, including revelations this week about Trump's own involvement in plans to consider having the Department of Homeland Security or the Department of Defense or the Department of Justice seize voting machines, new revelations about False electors uh, in 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 multiple states, continuing revelations about January sixth, and you know some of us are a little bit frustrated with the pace or lack of information about whatever it is that the Justice Department is doing to address this conspiracy. And so I thought if we had a couple of smart lawyers who've been writing about this and commenting about this, who could give us a little bit of a sense of how the case for seditious conspiracy or anything else against the president and those closest to him is coming together in your eyes, because we can't see it through the eyes of the Justice Department. Let me start with you, Richard. Well,
1: my concern is that nothing is happening. Of course, I don't know that for sure. But I believe the only effective way To investigate and prosecute uh, high ranking officials in the Trump administration, including potentially the former president himself, is to appoint a special prosecutor. Even the Trump administration knew that after the Russia investigation and the firing of James Comey, they needed to appoint a special prosecutor, Robert Mueller, to investigate what happened in 2016. What happened in 2019 with respect to Ukraine? And then what happened in 2020, in the months leading up to the election, and then even worse after the election, is far worse than what happened in 2016. And I am very, very concerned that Attorney General Merrick Garland is not willing to appoint a special prosecutor. This is not a situation where political appointees of President Biden themselves can with credibility, investigate and prosecute the former president. We need a special prosecutor. The regulations are there in the Department of Justice to appoint the special prosecutor. And the attorney general needs to proceed forthwith. But we're already going to have in a few months a tolling of the statute of limitations on the obstruction of justice. In part two of the Mueller report, I think it's very clear that Donald Trump committed obstruction of justice, and I know the DOJ has an internal memorandum that they have not disclosed, it's mostly redacted, trying to refute part two of the Mueller report on the substance, but that memo signed by Bill Barr, I believe when we see it, we'll find it's wrong, and actually a rendition of a memo Bill Barr had written in private practice trying to defend Donald Trump against Robert Mueller's investigation. So here we're going to see the statute of limitations expire on a report that taxpayers paid millions of dollars for because the Department of Justice is not willing to appoint a special prosecutor to step into Mueller's shoes and prosecute part two of the Mueller report. As I said, running through Ukraine, running through the scandals of 2020, which there were many, and I believe crimes are committed, happy to discuss those. And then we all know what happened after the election. I'm concerned that DOJ is not taking it seriously.
2: Randall, do you you share that concern and also sort of to the core question, do you think there's a case?
4: I don't share that concern and I respectfully disagree about the need for a special prosecutor. I mean, that's primarily necessary when there's a potential conflict of interest. We needed one when Mueller was appointed because it was Trump's Department of Justice investigating Trump himself. And that's usually when you need something like a special prosecutor prosecutor. We don't have that in this case. There's no such conflict of interest. And when you look at the resources that Merrick Garland has thrown at this investigation that he recounted in his speech a couple of weeks ago, I think 140 prosecutors, 700 plus people prosecuted so far, thousands and thousands of subpoenas and search warrants, arresting people in every single state. This is a massive, massive undertaking. It's one of the biggest, if not the biggest criminal investigations that DOJ has ever done. And having been involved in some big cases, although Nothing nearly approaching the size of this, but it takes time to build these cases and do them properly. And especially when it's something this big, and that gets frustrating because of the time it takes. But if you think about big, massive cases in the past, like Watergate or Enron or something like that, it's not uncommon for these investigations to take two, three years or more before you finally get to the top. And the way you do it is exactly what Merrick Garland said at his confirmation hearing. And he said in his recent speech last week you start at the bottom and you work your way up. And when I see from the outside, what's happening to me, it's proceeding about as you'd expect in the way that you'd expect, which is they're building the cases against the lower level people, the people that were actually riding at the Capitol, because the way you find out if the higher level people in the Trump administration were involved in orchestrating that or coordinating that is you prosecute the people on the ground and you flip them. And, you know, there's every indication there are now reports coming out that Uh, One of these defendants put in his uh, sentencing memorandum that the prosecutors were asking him about a possible conspiracy with Trump himself and other possible high level people. And now we have indications that they're getting close to Rudy Giuliani and Roger Stone and people that are just one step away from the president himself. So I understand the frustration with the pace, but it doesn't surprise me given the size of the undertaking here. And to me, there's no sign that Merrick Garland isn't up to the job or isn't taking this seriously.
3: I wanted to ask about just election subversion and kind of the lack of what I think is this growing sentiment across states and the country, an existential crisis, if you will, around presidential elections, much and much correlated with what we were just describing in the Trump administration and the aftermath. So I have a question for both of you because you both had to think about this. What would you recommend doing? There's been calls to kind of think about the Electoral Count Act, to have Congress more involved in some way, all coming with trade offs. Is there something that you see as a path forward? Even if we deal with some of the sedition issues, it feels like this election subversion topic still will hang over our country.
1: My concern here is that what happened on January 6th and what the crowd did invading the Capitol is just part of the much bigger picture with respect to the attempt to subvert the election before the election, as well as after the election. And Attorney General Garland is doing a very good job of going after the people who showed up at the Capitol and trying to get them to flip on others, and we'll see where that goes. But that is part of a much bigger picture of election subversion. Let's think about what happened. In 2019, the President of the United States Is telling Ukraine, I'll give you the $100 million of military aid if you'll have a criminal investigation of my opponent. That in and of itself is criminal, and he was impeached for that. Where's the prosecution? Where's the investigation of that? Where's the follow up? The message to Donald Trump is that he can get away with this. So in 2020, Donald Trump violated the criminal political coercion. Provisions 18 United States Code 610, where he is coercing his staff, his cabinet members, to engage in political activity. That is subversion of an election. It's in violation of the criminal code. I wrote a letter to the Department of Justice about that in October of 2020, before the election. Nothing happened. So, of course, after the election, when he loses, he does more of it. Pressures the DOJ to come up with memos saying that the election was invalid and that there was fraud. Now we hear about talking to the military to get the military to seize the ballot boxes, the voting machines, the draft memo to DOD with orders to seize the the, uh, voting machines to look for Chinese influence or whatever it was. Once again, we have evidence of sedition. We have evidence down in Georgia of an attempt to uh, solicit election fraud. The Secretary of State to come up with 11,000 votes. None of this having anything to do with the crowd that showed up on January 6th. We're not going to get information from that crowd. When people roll on the president with respect to any of those things. But I don't see them being prosecuted. So we're not going to have public confidence in this country in elections. If the loser in an election can simply turn around and engage in criminal conduct to subvert the election results with impunity, and if Attorney General Garland feels he can prosecute this without conflict of interest and prosecute the man who ran against Joe Biden, then I I'm fine. He can go ahead and proceed with that. But that's not what I'm saying with respect to any of these matters the conduct of Donald Trump going way back, 2019, 2020, and so forth. And it's very concerning. And now he's dangling pardons. saying think if I get back in, I'll pardon a whole bunch of people. That in and of itself, as Robert Mueller pointed out in part two of the Mueller report, the dangling of pardons can be obstruction of justice. But he wasn't prosecuted for part two of the Mueller report. Statute of limitations is about to expire. So, of course, he's doing it again. And this is just going to keep on going until somebody drops the hammer on.
2: It. Yeah, Randall, I, you know, I, I share Richard's concern here because it doesn't seem you talk about the case about January 6th and we talk about it narrowly about building it from the ground up. But it actually seems like a crime that took place over many, many months. It had many, many components. It had many, many participants. Richard has mentioned some, but not all of the crimes. He paid his own White House chief of staff, gave a million dollar donation to his his organization, which could, you know, have bought his uh, goodwill. Apparently, when he was considering the pardons, he said specifically to his staff that, you know, he thought that if he offered to pardon them, then they would be quiet and they wouldn't testify against him, which supports that that other argument. It would seem to me that the only right way to do this case is to take it in its totality rather than in each of its component parts. And I'm just wondering what your reaction is to that.
4: No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I just don't think we have any indication that 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 isn't exactly what's happening. It's important to distinguish between what we see publicly and what might actually be going on. In other words, it's not fair to say nothing is happening just because we don't see anything publicly. As Merrick Garland said recently, again, in that speech, DOJ speaks through its actions and a criminal investigation by its nature. A lot of it takes place out of public view. So, I mean, we do know now that they've started looking at these fraudulent electors. I mean, I do I do agree that it's important to distinguish between the actual rioters that broke into the Capitol and the much broader kind of conspiracy to steal the election. And I actually think if there were ultimately going to be charges against Trump himself, that's more likely to be the fruitful area. The idea about seizing the voting machines, having the fraudulent electors, you know, and all these other steps that were taken to try to overturn the election. And the riot ends up being sort of a convenient tool, you know, to help that happen, sort of stall the certification and try to pressure Mike Pence to to overturn the election. So, you know, the riot becomes just part of this bigger overall picture to try to steal the election. I think that's right. I just I, I just don't see any sign that that is not being investigated. I think that's exactly what's happening It's just that it takes a long time. But the people that uh, and people are you know, very critical on social media and elsewhere about the attorney general and about the pace of the investigation. And I just would ask, you know, what is it about Merrick Garland's record and his history and the things that he's said that leads people to believe he doesn't take this seriously? I mean, and that he's not doing everything possible, given the tremendous amount of resources being thrown at this investigation, unprecedented amount of resources being thrown at this unprecedented case during a pandemic. I mean, what is it that makes people think that he's just not taking this seriously or, or just he's letting it walk? I let I, don't, me, let me, I don't
2: see that at all. let me Let me pose two quick follow-ups. Mm-hmm. Let me give two answers to that, Randall, and just you, mm-hmm. can, you can react to them. One is what Richard mentioned earlier, which is he's completely but we don't see any action at all on on the Mueller report and the obstruction case, which seems to be very, very strong in multiple points. Setting that aside, we also for example, have not seen him take any action on the subpoena for Mark Meadows, which is something that sort of on its face, you would think could happen instantaneously. You know, I'll stop there. I mean, there, there, there are a number of instances where there is action that could be taken, where the action he took, I mean, he took action actually on the other side of the case of Eugene Carroll on behalf of the president. There are a number of things that suggest he's reluctant to act, but maybe you don't see that.
4: No, I don't agree with that. I mean, I mean, it, it did proceed with the indictment in Steve Bannon. I think with Meadows, there might be some other considerations going on about possibly waiting to see if we get further court decisions about the executive privileges, whether the House and Meadows might come to some agreement. But again, so we don't know. get a Supreme
2: Court decision <laughs> that suggests there is no executive privilege in these cases.
4: Yeah, but there, there's further possible negotiations going on about that with the House committee, I think. But I think the broader point is, again, I just stress the fact that we don't see things publicly happening doesn't mean they're not being addressed and not being taken seriously. And you can't just assume that nothing's happening just because it's not happening on the timetable that we might all like or that it's not yet public.
1: I'd agree with that. I want to add one thing here. I have enormous respect for Attorney General Garland and also Robert Mueller. And my concern here is going back to that part two of the Mueller report. When you read that carefully, that is a very clear uh, obstruction of justice, the roadmap for an indictment against Donald Trump. I believe at least as strong as the case against Richard Nixon for obstruction of justice and that Nixon would have been charged if Gerald Ford had not pardoned him. You know, now, in retrospect, maybe Joe Ford would have won that election in 76 if he just told the attorney general, well, just don't prosecute him. I won't pardon him. You know, the thing is, a former president who commits a crime should be held accountable. Part two of the Mueller report is really clear. We'll find out because the five year statute of limitations on James Comey's firing is going to run this spring. And if that runs without an indictment we're going to have millions of dollars of our taxpayer money was spent on that part two of the Mueller report. And he got away with it. And the fact he got away with is what led to Ukraine. And then we had that. Well, is that statute of limitations going to expire? You know, and that's coming up later. And then we go through 2020. And this list of crimes committed by this former president who now wants to run for the White House again Mm -hmm. is is a very long rap sheet. So, yes, I have enormous respect for Attorney General Garland, but we're waiting. We've been waiting a long time for this man to be held accountable.
2: We've got about.
3: So then in the meantime, is there any regulatory reform, any changes even to like the Electoral Count Act, any, anything that you would suggest that could also be relevant beyond what we hope Garland will do or DOJ?
4: Well, I have not studied the proposed reforms, the Electoral Count Act. Uh, I know that those are being considered. Just to sort of clarify, what actions the vice president can and can't take, you know, under that statute, to prevent any future uncertainty about what the vice president's powers actually are. But uh, I'm not a, an authority on what those reforms are. Maybe Richard knows better than I do.
1: Well, I, I don't. I think it's very clear. The pre- vice president just opens up the. Uh, Box boxes there and counts the votes uh, he's not there to throw elections and uh that's pretty clear from the constitution otherwise we might as well live in a dictatorship not a representative republic if the vice president could just say well no we didn't lose we won we got four more years i would recommend that the senate pass uh, the protecting our democracy act that passed the house that constrains presidential power that uh, calls for enforcement of the Monuments Clause of the Constitution, something I've been working on for the past four years, and also a provision that deals with the indictment of a sitting president. The Department of Justice is just wrong in the 1973 memos and the 2000 memo where they said that a sitting president cannot be indicted. And Robert Mueller was told that he had to assume that for the purpose of his investigation. Uh, I've written a quite lengthy article with Professor Claire Finkelstein at the University of Pennsylvania on that topic. And the the recent bill has a provision in it dealing with the indictment of the sitting president. And yes, we could postpone the trial of the sitting president if necessary to accommodate his official duties. But a sitting president is not above the law. The Supreme Court decided in 2020 that a sitting president can be served with a criminal subpoena, Trump versus Vance, and a sitting president can be indicted, as acknowledged in in this bill that is now pending with the Senate holding presidents accountable is absolutely critical. We may get Donald Trump again. I hope not. Or we may have somebody else who wants to abuse their powers another Richard Nixon. And we need to hold the president accountable. And that's the legislation we need to pass, along with the voting rights provisions uh, in the bill that got stuck in the Senate a couple of weeks ago with a filibuster.
2: Well, thank you, gentlemen, for that and for for opening up our discussion of where we are in all of this. This is where we take a break in our programming. And uh, we want to thank everybody who's with us for this first part of the program. And uh, uh, the next part of the program, we're going to be joined by two other experts. We're going to continue to discuss this. If you're a member, you're going to be able to just sit right where you are and you'll be able to listen to it. The meantime, let me thank you, Randall. Let me thank you, Richard, very much for joining us. Hope you will join us again soon. I suspect this is going to be ongoing for quite some time. Your contributions are much appreciated, and Kavita, uh, stand by. We'll be back with our new guests in one moment. Hello, and welcome back to the second part of our podcast, where we're joined by two other guests, two distinguished guests who've been with us before and who are terrific: Asha Rangappa of Yale, who is a uh, also former FBI agent, notable commentator. On CNN and elsewhere, and another notable commentator, uh, legal scholar on all things having to do with elections, also of the Brookings Institution, Norm Eisen. How are you, Norm?
5: Great, David. Hi, Asha.
0: Hi, Norm.
2: Guys, we started out our discussion. I want to be very. We had a very nice discussion the, the first half of our show with Richard Painter, Randall Eliason, and we we're talking a little bit about. Where we are in the conspiracy case against Donald Trump. And basically, as I said at the beginning, it's a bit of a therapeutic episode because I'm a little frustrated with what I don't hear out of the Department of Justice. And I know all the arguments that, you know, that's the way it works. And I shouldn't hear anything. But I also know that if after a while we 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 hear nothing, then, you know, it'll be too late before we find out nothing is going on. So it's a source of some anxiety. But every single day, there seems to be new information about what Donald Trump did in a very far reaching conspiracy to steal the election from teeing it up to trying to intimidate state officials who are counting elections to posting ballots, illegal ballots of electors to January 6th to plots considered to impound voting machines, either by DOD or by DHS or or by DOJ, and on and on and on. It seems like this is a big, complicated, classic conspiracy that could be prosecuted on the basis of evidence we know. Do I have that wrong, Asha?
0: It's hard for me to answer that question because I don't know at what state the actual investigation is in and what they've collected, you know, how they've collected it. I also think that you can't ignore the fact that the defendant is a former president. So I, I don't think that this is really about the evidence, to be quite honest. I think this is about the Department of Justice's willingness to basically take initiative in in doing something that has you know some ramifications politically and you know whether they're they're willing to do that and set that precedent
2: well that certainly doesn't sound like one of the earlier responses we got which is i'm sure they're doing it and and the fact that we haven't heard anything is the reason i'm sure which i find very confusing frankly the logic of
0: well this is and this is the the thing is that i feel like for a lot of I mean, Norm, you you tell me. I mean, I feel like there would have been overt investigative steps taken at this point if there yeah. were really an active yeah. investigation happening, right? And that's what I'm saying. Like I, you can, know, we can point to all this evidence, but there has to be a formal investigation that has collected this evidence in such a way that is moving towards a prosecution. And I mean, some of this stuff could be gotten quietly with subpoenas and stuff. But at some point, you know, there has to be search warrants executed. There has to be interviews done and 302s taken. And are those happening? I mean, it's been over a year. Norm, what do you think? I
5: tend to doubt that there is substantial investigative effort going towards proving a seditious conspiracy involving or led by President Trump. I certainly think, and Asha worked on him as an FBI agent, I've done investigations in government and for decades defended him. The fact that we don't know anything, the silence is not probative that an investigation (laughs) is happening. So that is with all respect. And you have some very respectable commentators on. We were visiting on the break with the previous crew. You know, the silence is not proof. That is a kind of, I think we would see signs. Now, there have been some indications, David. We know, for example, some indications of lighter, what I'll call lighter contemplation of presidential involvement that prosecutors when prosecutors are interviewing defendants as part of cooperation and sentencing, that they're starting to ask, you know, about uh, potential higher-up involvement in planning the activities. In the one case that's coming to mind, the answer was apparently no, there was no Trump or White House involvement in my violent acts. So, you know, there's probably some contemplation I think the more likely, and we could be wrong, but I think the more like when Mueller was doing his thing, which you talked about on the first half of the show, there's so many indicators. And Ash and I talked about him as friends, and we also went on the air and talked about him. Even though he was proceeding with great confidentiality, there were so many indicia of the investigation. We just don't have that here. So
2: yeah. I, I tend to agree but with But we also Asha. have to, to we also have to compound that. The fact that Mueller laid out a dozen cases of obstruction and they expire in a couple of months, as Asha has written, and this Department of Justice doesn't seem inclined to do anything about that.
5: Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that they're not going to at this point, that they're not going to move. I think that there's some and I think it's a pity it's more than a pity. It's very disturbing since I gave a year of my life to investigating <laughs> impeachment. I went to the Hill because I was sure, based on what we knew, what Asha and I saw in real time and talked about so often, I think I might have come on the podcast and talked about it. I was sure that there had been obstruction of justice and that surely Bob was going to find that. There's a wonderful picture of him swearing swearing Asha in when she joined the FBI. And I have had the privilege of knowing him and that once he found that he wouldn't charge it because of DOJ limitations, because of DOJ policy, but then it would be a natural slam dunk for an impeachment. And all of that happened. But only one thing intervened. Bill Barr (laughs) distorted Bob's report. And Bob didn't quite draw the conclusion out of a misguided sense of fairness that, yes, there's sufficient evidence to charge the president with obstruction. So we were not able. It should have been as much of a slam dunk impeachment as Ukraine was. And we snuck it into the Ukraine impeachment in the second, in both counts, actually, that impeachment. So I, more than anyone, am bitter about the denouement of the obstruction, but we've got to let go. Let's focus on persuading DOJ is going to get a very robust criminal referral, even more explicit than one they got from Bob in his report.
0: But, but they can't wait for a criminal referral, Norm. I mean, come on. As You'd think that they're waiting for that, like they're sitting well,
5: there twiddling Asha, their thumbs? Asha, one, it depends what you mean by can. One, clearly they can because they are waiting for it. That's number one. Whether you or I, if we were the the AG or the DAG, whether we would wait, you know, Merrick Garland has a very hard task. And I know I'm going to get a series of furious phone calls when this podcast airs. I may get a furious shout out from the people who are here with me. He has a very hard task of restoring credibility at DOJ. And maybe he needs to wait for this referral to have an independent bipartisan Liz Cheney going to sign on. She's already signaling that there's an obstruction of Congress charge. By the way, I think that's a much better charge than yeah, seditious conspiracy and some of the other wild. Asha has been in those rooms and so have I when prosecutors like decide on these charges and, you know, they're not going to charge unless there's some terrific voicemail to Stuart Rhodes, hey, Stewie, it's President Trump here. Go get him. Unless <laughs> there's the, something Don't, like don't that. put that they're,
3: beyond the realm of possibility. Not,
5: yeah, I wouldn't put it beyond. <laughs> so,
0: he, you know, I did pose this question, Norm, on Twitter, whether let's leave aside the storming of the Capitol, whether the the plot to try to seize these voting machines, whether using the military to seize them, contemplating that, putting that plan in motion, which he did. Would that be considered a use of force?
5: Yeah, I was debating it. Asha, I was debating it because the, the EOs with my wonderful team who work so hard to help me get ready for things. It only seems like I'm coming on and free associating, but actually pre- <laughs> we prepared for hours and we had a wonderful internal debate. The great Colby Gallagher, who's my lead research researcher on whether. The draft EOs were sufficiently unmoored and untethered from legality that, you know, like like uh, Bivens case, was it beyond the scope? There's okay. a variety of different technical tests. Was it so far beyond the outer penumbra of presidential power that that qualifies as a conspiracy to use force? And, you know, was the president bought enough in? Right. To Because we know the conspiracy doesn't have to be successful, Asha, you Right, prosecuted many, and 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 David. even
0: especially for seditious conspiracy, has even right. a lower threshold in terms of having. I, I mean, don't. they wouldn't charge it if there weren't overt acts, and there are. But you know, the seditious yeah. conspiracy is is really even just the the plan.
5: But reverting then to your question, David, no, the public record evidence not today is not sufficient, I believe. Because remember, it's got to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And there's evidence to argue, perhaps to prove by preponderance, slightly over 50, or clear and convincing a little more, but not at the moment beyond a reasonable doubt. But we'll see. It's early days yet. I know from my own experience with congressional investigations, they've got, and particularly with these investigators, the members, the investigators, I know them well, all the stuff we're hearing and learning and these draft EOs, this is just the appetizer portion. They're going to have dynamite blockbuster hearings, and then they'll have a big interim report. All that'll be to DOJ by this summer and we'll see if there's more right now there's not enough but i'll tell you what there is enough where i will say that there is substantial risk of prosecution is in the state of georgia cuz we have that tape recording and it certainly seems as if the president was soliciting election fraud you can't say just quote find 11,780 votes one more than necessary to flip the election when the votes don't exist that's a seems substantial Risk of prosecution in Georgia. I don't think Fannie Willis is impaneling a special grand jury to reject the case. So if you want some assurance of prosecution, look to Georgia.
3: I'm going to ask the most naive non-lawyer question. What about civil action against the president for January 6th? I mean, they're D.C. attorney general, all these private suits. Would that be in a realm of possibility or is that just off the table?
0: There may be parties that have suffered an injury that they can bring suit, but to what end? I mean, he's being sued all over the place. Like, so what? What's the point here? I mean, for me, the criminal cases are to have actual accountability. And the civil suits, they have that sort of, but not really, in my opinion. I mean, they're symbolic. Criminal accountability is just a completely different level. And I'll just add that, One thing to remember, and I mentioned this on Twitter as well, that even if he were charged and convicted and goes to jail, that actually doesn't stop him from running for president again. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people are under the assumption that this is the way to stop him. It doesn't.
5: It affects his rally attendance somewhat. I can see him
0: being very successful campaigning as a martyr from jail. I mean, I don't know if they want to start going down this road, but...
5: First of all, he only would have won with the help of Jim Comey in 2016. And that stupid, foolish way that it all played out. Number two, he lost in 2020. He probably, you know, he's a threat in 24, but no, if he's in jail or even Enmeshed in probably, you know, we meshed in criminal appeals and proceedings. Well, I mean, That's I mean, going to be a net negative on I, the campaign trail. Fo-
2: following up on this, because Asha asks a really core point, which is to what end? Why do we care about all of this? Do we just want to punish the guy because we don't like him? No, that's not it. Do we want to punish rioters for doing this thing as though there were no, you know, origin? No. The issue here with Trump from 2016 onward has been a series of decisions, and Norm, you made reference to this, that suggest the president of the United States is above the law. We have either both, you know, picking up on old Office of Legal Counsel memos, or with Barr's interpretation of things, or with Merrick Garland not picking up on things from the Mueller report, or If things go the way that you guys seem to indicate it's going, Donald Trump's going to get to the end of all of this and a precedent will have been set Mm -hmm. that said you can try to overthrow the government of the United States, steal an election, use the government to do it, try to buy off your potential witnesses in a whole variety of ways, commit manifold crimes in a country where, you know, poor people are thrown into jail for stealing a loaf of bread And if you're the president of the United States, you can do it. I mean, isn't that the message that we're going to end up with at the end of this?
5: Well, I wrote a book called uh, A Case for the American People, the United States v. Trump, about the impeachment, but also about this question. And I think the 2020 election was a verdict. It's not total impunity. I think he's going to get prosecuted in Georgia, David. So that is very likely, you know. I've got a long Brookings report; it's like a hundred pages long, going through the evidence and the analysis. And it, it, that report reaches the conclusion you were asking about federal prosecution. So that's hardly impunity. He may get. I wrote another one on prosecution in New York. He may get prosecuted in New York. Substantial civil exposure there as well to Kavita's good question. So you know, if those things, there's other forms of. Accountability besides a DOJ prosecution.
2: Asha, isn't this what we have a Department of Justice to act upon?
0: Yeah, I I mean, I think that there is something very important in the Department of Justice bringing a prosecution. If he had left office and all we had was the Mueller report, and it was a choice between that or letting Georgia or even New York take the baton. It would be one thing. But it has just been one criminal act after another up until his last day in office. And there just needs to be, like you said, just the message sent that, but, you know, for if anything, for kind of a, a deterrent purpose for the future, that when you engage in an abuse of power the department of justice will hold you accountable they're not going to pawn it off to some state they're not going to ignore it you know and we kind of frankly we did that once with nixon and that's probably why we're in the boat we are now so the next iteration whether it's trump or someone else is only going to be worse all of these questions that the department of justice has to grapple with that garland has to grapple with are going to be there again and so i think that this is the time to set the precedent Even if it's not ultimately successful in terms of convicting him, I think that there is value, just as there was, in my opinion, value in bringing the impeachment proceedings, even if he wasn't going to be convicted. There is something, you know, there is. We knew he wasn't. Imagine if he hadn't been impeached for incitement of insurrection. Mm -hmm. And we had just passed the buck saying, you know, oh, DOJ will handle it.
2: But we did pass the buck. Because what was the conclusion of all of that? And the conclusion of the trial, it was McConnell saying, well, somebody can prosecute this. We'll let DOJ do it. And now we're saying, well, DOJ may not do it. The states will do it. And it's like the hot potato. You know, it's like, yeah, somebody's got to do it, but it's not going to be me.
5: There is the problem of federal prosecutors can't charge him if they don't think a jury will convict him. If they don't think they have sufficient evidence to persuade a jury, and that brings us. That but that's us only back to where but we Norm, started.
0: Norm, the DOJ manual says if you don't believe you have sufficient evidence to convict him. Right. But if you believe that conviction may be difficult because the defendant is popular True. or that is not a reason not to. True. So it, so that that's a distinction. Back,
5: but that brings us back to where we started on whether there's sufficient and where David's first question on whether there's sufficient evidence in the record right now for federal charges. If there is anything, it probably is for obstruction, a 1512, 18 USC 1512 obstruction case. But I don't think we have quite enough. I'm with Asha on wanting to see what the committee comes up with in the hearings and in the report. And then DOJ will decide. And, you know, even though I probably would, if I were AG, I might have approached it a little differently. You can see where an AG might say, I don't want to bump into this bipartisan, very active congressional investigation. I'm going to do their thing. I'm going to put the House in order, and then I'm going to accept the referral and let the chips fall.
2: By the way, though, we know in 11 months that in all likelihood, that bipartisan congressional investigation is not only going to be shut down, but a new committee is going to be convened to repudiate everything that they said and to attack those who participated in it for abusing power. So we do have a bit of a clock in any event. Uh, it's very good of the two of you to join us. You have not in the slightest cheered me up. And uh, at least uh, we
5: made you smile.
2: Yes, at least you made me smile. And, well, you always do. And uh, hopefully you'll come back and, and maybe you'll come back around some kind of action on some of this. In any event, thanks very much, uh, Norm. Thanks very much, Asha. Thanks very much, Kavita. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back again soon,
5: and we will be continuing to talk about this until it's resolved one way or the tether. Bye-bye.